0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. One of the great benefits of worshiping uh, in a room like this is we get some very clear visuals. And there is a visual that you may not notice, but it's actually very important for our time this afternoon. And it is that there is an altar right here. It's a place to kneel and confess and open up. It's the place where you put your body in submission to God on your knees as an act of worship. It's a helpful reminder that the altar is part of the Christian story. And there's also a table, where symbolically the body and blood of Jesus are represented in the bread and the wine, a reminder that the table is a place of fellowship where Jesus hosts us and welcomes us and assures us of his love for us, where the local body of Jesus gathers around the body of Jesus. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that is an intentional setup or not, but it is a very clarifying picture of the reality of how the Bible depicts communion. The altar and the table are distinct, the same. In this room, physically, you have to approach the altar before you come to the table. And what I love about this is that it represents something that has always been true in the story of God, that the altar and the table are woven throughout the thread of Scripture, always connected and yet always distinct. And for many years, I fear the practice of communion in the contemporary church, we have looked at them the exact same way. And our experience of them has been identical, but they are not meant to be practiced the same. The question after Genesis 3 that we see creep up over and over and over again is how can a holy God live among a sinful people? That is the question the Bible seeks to answer. And I want to answer this because not only is this critical for for biblical theology and accurately reading and interpreting the scripture, it actually walks us up right to God's intent, which is personal communion and intimacy with his children. So I want to take this in three chunks, three things we are not familiar with in modern day America, but we need to familiarize ourselves with them if we're to reckon with the table. And they are altars, sacrifices, and covenants. When most of us think of the altar in the Old Testament, we start with the altar in the tabernacle. But the altar in the tabernacle is actually based off the altar in the story we just read in Exodus 24. Now in Exodus 19, the Israelites are strictly forbidden from ascending Mount Sinai. God says this, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why can't they go up? Why can't they even touch it? It's because they will be consumed. Because they will have stepped into the presence of God without any buffer, without being cleansed, without being purified. There is no way in which they will not absolutely get taken out. So what does Moses do? Well, he builds an altar. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you know anything about altars, you know that it wasn't merely a holding place for a sacrifice, but it was the visual after the altar that is so startling. Look at what it says Moses did. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And Moses took the blood and and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now compare that with what we know of the practice of the tabernacle years later in Leviticus. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now here is the picture I want us to get. God is showing us in very, very dramatic fashion, blood atones for sin. There is blood sprinkled in front of the veil, there is blood painted on the horns of the altar, and there is blood poured out. Imagine for a moment you are the one doing the sacrifice. The imagery is unavoidable. Our sin has tainted everything, sprinkling it before the veil, painting it on the altar, pouring it out in the basin. It is obvious for anyone with eyes to see the, the reason and representation is our, the blood of the sacrifice has covered everything, meaning everything must be. There is a grave need for atonement. There is a great need for something to die. And out of God's ever-flowing love for us, He provides an altar, a place where something will die. And part of our experience of communion or lack thereof is that we miss the depth and intensity of our imperfection. We are just not honest about the reality of our standing before God. And our inability to grasp that reality hinders us from the celebration that the family meal is intended for. Again, imagine you, the worshiper, standing in front of the altar that was clean, and now blood has stained everything on it. I would imagine the altar begins to cement itself into your mind. Now, if you fast forward from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, you will see something interesting just as the representatives of the people had to be consecrated through sacrifices on an altar before ascending Mount Sinai, the priests had to be consecrated before entering the holy place in the tabernacle. And where the people met with the presence of God at the pinnacle of Sinai, the high priests were met with the presence of God behind the veil in the Ark of the Covenant. The altar is the holds the sacrifice, and it is a critical piece of the story. There is no communion without an altar, which leads us to what the altar actually holds. Sacrifices. We don't really understand the idea of sacrifices, particularly ones in a sacrificial system. I imagine most of you in this room, if we said um, we were going to sacrifice an animal, you would call Peta. Uh and then uh, you would be very angry, and that would be gross, you would deem that as grossly immoral. Um, it, it actually is relatively unheard of, the sacrificing animals in, uh, in our day. But consider what Nancy Guthrie says about sacrificing in this time. For us, the word sacrifice means giving something up or taking something on that cost us money or comfort or convenience. But sacrifice in the Bible is the bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered on an altar. Imagine the sensory overload of this experience, the violent resistance of the animal, the spurting of blood, the feel of pulling the animal apart, the smell of its burning flesh and bones. Imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering this sacrifice, knowing that it was your sin that made this death necessary. And imagine for a moment the frustration that you must feel knowing that you'll be back tomorrow or next week because you will sin again. Sacrifices were gifts. They were offerings. They were offered to God on behalf of the people, and God established a system in which various sacrifices and various offerings would atone for various things. There are five major offerings in the Old Testament. Burnt offering, sin offering, guilt offering, grain offering, and the peace offering. The two I want to focus on are the burnt offering and the peace offerings. The word for burnt offering is ola, or translated in offering of assent. It was this general atonement for all sin, and it was an expression of devotion to God, which is why the whole burnt offering got burned up. It was consumed fully. There was no leftovers. There was no remnants. It just burned there. It is a statement that says, God, you can have all of me. But the second is the peace offering, and it is commonly called the fellowship offering, and here's why. The peace offering expresses the reconciliation and the fellowship and the peace that exists between God and His people after the sacrifice. And unlike the burnt offering that is completely consumed by fire, the peace offering is eaten by both the priests and the worshipers. It is the only offering that ends up in a meal. And when you think of the word fellowship, the term is loosely translated in various translations such as welfare, well-being, communion, shared offering, or peace. And John Mark Hicks says this, All of the various translations stem from the Hebrew word shalom, which many believe is in relation to the normal Hebrew term for peace, which is shalom. The sacrifice establishes fellowship, or peace, through its removal of sin, but it primarily exhibits fellowship, peace between God and worshiper, through a covenantal meal. So I want you to consider what would take place prior to a fellowship offering. A worshiper would come to the temple, they would bring an animal with them, They would lay their hands on the animal and declare their intention to the animal. Much of the time, the fellowship offering would be offered in thanksgiving, which is Leviticus 7.12, and other times, they vow a commitment to God before God. The worshiper would then kill the animal. The priest would then catch the blood in a bowl and pour it around the altar. A Levite would then take the animal, butcher it, and after it had died, would be the fa- all the fat would be consumed on the altar because all the fat is the Lord's. And then the rest of the animal would be divided up. The priest took his portion home to share with his family. The worshiper took the rest to his home for a meal with family and friends. And the Thanksgiving offering, or the fellowship offering, had to be eaten, on that day or the day after. see, the, uh, I, I would almost actually say it was built into the law itself that a, a meal would be shared with, with other people. This was not a, a sacrifice of a, a small animal. If you uh, the text says it was an oxen, a typical oxen or around 800 pounds. So you had to eat a meal of 800 pounds within two days. Uh, it was literally built in that this was a family meal. And the sacrifice of an animal becomes the meal of Thanksgiving. And what is an atrocious act done to a creature now is a celebratory feast between the people of God and God Himself. The meal now cements the peace between God and the priests and the worshiper. And our focus so much is focused on the sacrifice and the altar, but communion is not merely about how communion was established, but how it actually gets played out. Communion with God does not actually get played out around the altar. It gets played out around the table. And the sacrifice and the altar are critical pieces to our relationship with God, a place to kneel in confession, and a substitute on behalf of us to God for our sins. But neither of those places are the experience of communion with the Father. That is at the table. And if you're thinking, this feels like a little bit of a stretch. We're going all the way back to the Old Testament to talk about the Lord's Supper. Consider what Paul said when talking to the New Testament church in Corinth. He calls them back to the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10:18. Consider the people of Israel. He's talking to the church of Corinth. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar. We come to the altar before we come to the table. They are connected, but in the Old Testament, as well as what we will see in the New Testament, they are not the same. One is a sacrifice that is required, and one is a meal that is experienced. And finally, covenants, which are a major theme throughout the Bible. We see again Exodus 19 of how God and His people strike a covenant, which is simply A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. Here is what God tells Moses. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, God initiates a covenant that is summarized in these two verses and is more broadly expounded upon in the next three chapters Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23 are the Ten Commandments and the Book of Covenants. And then Moses goes down to the people and prepares them for what is about to happen. And in verse 17, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. I and I was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Down to the people of Israel communicates all God has shared, and the people respond by saying, all the words that the Lord God has spoken, we will do. God lays out and initiates the covenant, and the people respond willingly and voluntarily. So Moses builds an altar where offerings and sacrifices will be made. The sacrifice is killed on the altar, and then Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So a covenant is established. Yahweh will be their God. The Israelites will be His people. The Israelites are a holy nation, and Yahweh is a holy God, and they will serve no one else. He will extend His grace. They will worship Him. He will provide the methods for human flourishing, the, wa- the laws, the ways of life, and they will receive and be glad, keep them, and be in safe refuge with God. This is the covenant, and this is how it's established, but how does the covenant get sealed? How does the covenant get celebrated? Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. These 70 or so people were just told they couldn't even touch the mountain. And now, not only have some of them scaled it, but they sit down in the marvelous, glorious presence of God and eat with Him. And what did they eat but the sacrifice on the altar? The covenant was enacted on the altar with a sacrifice, but it was experienced at a table with God. Because at the altar, there was merely a removal of sin. But at the table, there was an experience of God's fellowship and peace, His original intent, holy over a meal. And if you know the story of the Lord's Supper, you know the words about the covenant should ring a bell. Because Jesus says, "...and He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, "'Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.'" the blood of the covenant. What we see Moses doing with the sacrifice as he throws the blood on the people to enact the covenant at Sinai, we now see Jesus hearkening back to that event with those same words saying, this is the new covenant, me poured out for you for forgiveness. Drink this knowing that. It is an invitation. Jesus offers himself as the sacrificial lamb on the altar of the wooden cross, making way for the covenant that Jesus is Lord and we are His people. Now some are probably wondering, cool, let's go. That's some interesting biblical theology, but I'm trying to connect the dots from 5,000 years ago in a sacrificial system that's been obsolete for 2,000 years to present-day communion in Oakwood, Lincoln Park. Here's what it means for us, briefly. The altar is the means. The table is the end. The altar makes the table possible. Without the altar, we have no table. In the practice of communion, we focused almost entirely on the altar, but the altar is the preamble to the table. At the altar, we just said there's blood sacrifice. At the table, there's undignified joy. At the altar, there's penance and guilt, remorse and mourning. At the table, there is celebration, assurance of salvation, and a welcome from God. The altar is the place of death. The table is the resurrection. And I want you to hear me. It's not that we should not consider the implications of Jesus hanging on a tree, or that it was our sin that placed Him there. But we believe, we, we actually, were weird because we believe this. We believe that the crucifixion of Jesus has absolutely no meaning if not for the resurrection of Jesus. It's just another Middle Eastern man hanging from two wooden beams Needless evil wrecking our world if there is a full grave. The glory of Jesus is that of an altar table. There is no table without an altar, but the altar is not the goal. The cross is the altar. The empty tomb is the table. The goal of the cross is not needless, useless suffering. The goal of the cross is not wallowing in shame or feeling this Inevitable, constant, low-grade guilt that's just always humming in your heart. The goal of the cross is the empty grave. The cross infers judgment on sin and death, but the resurrection allows for intimacy with God Himself. Jesus provided an opportunity for reconciliation, and now He provides the felt experience. Of that reconciliation. We would do well, in fact, I would say it's foolish to not do this, we would do well to do business at the altar of God before stepping to the table of God, but the table is distinct from the altar. Hicks again says, the table is the experience of communion, not the search for atonement not the search for atonement. Let us not confuse the two. The table is not a place where you just rehearse your sins over the course of this past week and try to muster up enough guilt that you now feel like you can approach the table. The whole point of the table is that you don't belong to it, and neither do I. That's the scandal. So coming sort of begrudgingly, without joy at what God has done for us, negates what God has done for us. The end game has always been intimacy with God, and we, by the way, screwed that up. And so God built an altar and invited us back to the table. Our experience of communion is not this quiet, somber, private moment That we have solely made it about. It is actually about unbridled, unbelievable joy at the invitation. We have a seat with the King of Glory. The altar is critical, but it's not the same as the table. Second, the meal is about about fellowship with God. So we have actually been invited into a legitimate conversation with God Himself and Our current practice of communion isn't typically around an actual table, an actual dinner table in your homes. And though we may be in the same room as folks, we certainly have it more individualized than communal, more private than public. But think about the English word for communion. Com, prefix for with. Union, unity, oneness. There is a sharedness to this. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Many and one. We and one. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus is who we eat of and with at the table. It is this fellowship offering Peace with God, unity with God, celebrated with food and drink, representing Jesus himself. The Lord's Supper is the continuation of Passover, which, by the way, is a fellowship offering. The, fe- the Passover feast, which we're going to talk about more in two weeks, is actually a fellowship meal. And when Jesus is practicing the Lord's Supper, or at least enter it, should say, instituting the Lord's Supper. He's instituting the Lord's Supper at Passover, at the fellowship offering. And Jesus says at the Last Supper, they're they're offering thanksgiving, praise, honor to God. They're singing, they're laughing, they're, they're passing the plate. And Jesus says from now on, this meal is not about the past. This meal is about me. In fact, eat this, my body, and drink this, my blood, with me ruminating in your heart as you eat and drink of these elements. Just because we live in the 21st century Western world, don't miss that it was God the Father who ate at the table with Moses and the elders in Israel, and it was God the Son who ate at the table with his disciples, and it was God who still invites us to eat at the table with Him today. It's not just another meal. It is a meal with God, about God, remembering and reflecting on the goodness and graciousness of God. And thus, we remember God with our minds, and we remember God with our bodies. The meal is, a, is about fellowship with God. Lastly, the meal is about a covenant. It is a time where we remember and cherish God's promise to us, and God proves His promise to us by meeting us at the table. And it's actually a time where I don't think this has been really taught, but if it is a fellowship offering that has been transformed, it actually is a time for us to re-up our commitment to God. Think about taking communion every week. And think about the fact that a covenant, like I said, is two parties voluntarily choosing to be in relationship with each other. God has not forced you to be in relationship with Him. Those of us in this room who love Jesus love Him because we have been overwhelmed by His grace, and now we love His name and have been invited into His story. At the table, we certainly receive the sweet embrace of God, and we have our senses jolted as we literally taste and see with our eyes and taste with our lips that the Lord is good. And out of that tasting of bread and wine, we are commissioned out into the world because we are not merely passive recipients. We are actually active participants. We eat and drink We receive and are fuel. We symbolically, through eating and drinking, ingest the grace of God in us, believe the grace of God fully, and then are compelled. This is important. We are then compelled by that meal to go become the felt experience of grace to those around us. It's it's literally the life. We receive, then we give. We walk into grace, and then we walk into the world We receive the offering poured out, then we become the offering poured out. We feed on the bread at the table, and then we become food for our neighbors. The good news that we consume on Sunday becomes the life that we give on Monday. It's discipleship. It's what we signed up for. God extends His grace because He is love, and we give our lives His grace away because we love Him. It's not out of earning. It's actually out of loving. Remember the question I asked at the beginning, how can a holy God live among a sinful people? He provides an altar, becomes himself the sacrifice, and is permanently tied to his unchanging word that he will never go back on. And not only does he live among us, but he actually longs to dwell there. He is not doing it half-heartedly. He's not second-guessing himself. He came down to our level and wants to commune with us at the table. Our unimpressive, filthy world, he stepped into, walked, and died. The cross is the altar, Jesus is the sacrifice. And through both of those, a covenant is established, but He is also the living bread who pushed up His own casket and made a mockery of suffering and death by going through it and overcoming it. And He gave us a meal at a table as a sign and a signal that He is with us and that He is for us and that He is never leaving us. And He has given that up, given that to us as a gift So we now go with confidence and security because we have tasted the bread and we have tasted the cup and now we become the bread and we become the cup for our neighbors. Jesus ascended to the sky. He reigns on his throne and he gave us his spirit and he says, I will not drink of this again until the coming of the kingdom. And so now we're going to eat and we're going to drink, looking back at his faithfulness, being present with us now, and looking forward to the day. going to be around the longest table the earth has seen. Hicks, one last time, says, Heeding the admonition of Paul, we should consider the impact the fellowship meals of Israel had on the Lord's Supper. As a Thanksgiving meal, it should be celebrative and joyous. As a fellowship meal, it should be communal and interactive. And as a participation in the altar and the tomb, it should be the experience of grace and blessing. Eat in the presence of God. I, Wes Mills, I want this for our church. I think this has the potential, as it did 2000, years ago to spark a kind of internal revolution that becomes this external revolution. We actually believe Jesus rose from the dead, and we're going to sit at a table with him where he both hosts us and is the meal himself, and it is going to fuel us for the rest of our life. Let's pray. Jesus, We are amazed by the fact that You would even want us and that You have come to dwell in us with us. It is difficult to wrap our heads around, but it is more difficult to actually believe in our spirit because we know us. We know who we are. And in some strange world, You know us better than we do. And You still Came. thank you. We praise you. And we want to become the offering to those around us. It's not only a moment of receiving, though it is, but it's also a moment to say, God, give us the grace this week to become the bread and the wine for our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends. The life that you give us now sustains us so we can pour it back out. Let that be the rhythm of this church. Let that be the rhythm of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.